what we've been discussing for the last several months, it seems like now, uh, in terms of church anatomy. So those of us that are joining us and haven't joined us in a while, we're still doing church anatomy, if you're wondering. And those of you that are Bryce, um, um, we're, I'm so delighted to see you again, man. Like, you have no idea. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to have you um, here. We've been walking through what does a biblical church look like, because this is essentially a church plant that's, that, that the Lord is planting and putting into the ground. And so we want to see the biblical uh, model of what a, what a church is and what are the things that we should have in the church being the body of Christ we chose the name uh, church anatomy because when you study the, the the human body, you call that human anatomy, right? Um, so we looked at the skeletons, uh, the skeleton, just one skeleton of the body, the non-negotiable truths that uh, a church must have, a biblical church must have is a high view of God, absolute authority of scripture, sound doctrine, personal holiness, and spiritual authority. So those things are going to be there in your handouts each week so that it's almost like ingrained and burned into, um, into our memories um, because God has to be the primary focus of our life and our worship. Uh, what we believe and how we live out would be in submission to the authority of nothing but Scripture um, as the highest authority of our worship and our life. And then um, teaching what the Bible says without compromise, that's sound doctrine, um, not only would we committed in a theoretical way, and I think the Lord spoke to us this morning to be doers and not, not only hearers, right? Um, not just theoretically grasping these truths and knowing about them and just being content with that, but actually pursuing holiness um, in a practical way in our thoughts and our motivation and our speech and our action. Like those things should express the holiness of God. Um, individually and as a church, and, and also uh, committed to be held accountable uh, to biblical authority as, as much as is designated to the, um, the church, the local church. So within that, we started looking at our um, internal systems, which are the spiritual attitudes of obedience, of humility, of love, uh, unity, um, willingness to serve, self-discipline, and last week we looked at accountability. So you kind of see the, the, the trajectory of how one feeds into another. An obedient church is one that is marked by its humility, right? Um, and then uh, an obedient, humble church loves God and loves people. And an obedient, humble, loving church has no reason to divide amongst itself, but works hard to and works diligently to remain united as one. Um, and because we are united and we're loving and we're humble and we are, uh, we are obedient, then we can actually use the gifts and the talents that God has given us that we've received from the Lord to serve one another. And we do that by keeping ourselves disciplined um, as authentic believers. And we can keep that um, 
and shape, if you will, by showing concern or the way that we show that is by showing concern and responsibility for one another, bearing each other's burden, keeping one another accountable and keeping ourselves accountable. That's what we looked at last week. Um, but when we do all of these things, what are we depending on? That's the topic of our conversation today is, de is dependence. And you hear the word dependence, and at least from, from my perspective, um, in society, dependence is a negative thing, right? Like you don't want to be dependent on anybody. The term is seen as a, as a negative um, in society. In fact, from the moment we are like self-conscious or, or, or aware of our surroundings, we desire to be independent and we're encouraged to be independent. Be independent thinkers, walk by yourself, feed yourself, make your own food, um, dress yourself up. I mean, from, from a young age, right? That's, and those, those things aren't inherently bad. But independence is almost baked into the culture of the world. It's, it's, it's part of our DNA almost. And then as you grow older, you're supposed to be more and more independent, and then you turn 18, and then now you gotta, you got to move out of the house, and then you get into become a, a young adult, and then you got to be independent. you got to start your own family that's going to be there, and then you're going to have dependents that which are going to then push to independence, and the cycle continues. So to consider dependence in the midst of this kind of worldview and this kind of culture is kind of difficult. Especially when we're talking about dependence among capable people. Like you have capabilities as a church. We are full of capable people to lead and to preach and to sing and to, to, to do the minister. Everybody's capable. And, and, and temporally speaking. And this idea, this attitude of dependence can be easily forsaken or maybe even avoided. God can be a passenger in his own church if we're not careful. We can reduce him and relegate him and maybe even in worst cases, we can even eliminate him from his own church and become reliant on our, the strength of the people in the church and the strength of the activities that we offer and the, and the vitality and the, the excitement that we, we have with all kinds of different ministries that we can, we can have. And so dependence can be something that we ignore and reduce God to, to go take a back seat somewhere or completely just kick him out of the car and then we keep driving. So we need to cultivate the spiritual attitude of dependence in our personal lives first, but also in the life of the church in order to guard against this natural inclination of self-reliance. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Like, that is our like default positions as people is to be self-reliant. Like relying on yourself to go from point A to point B to do X or Y and Z to, 
Like that, that just comes naturally to all of us. So to say, okay, I'm no longer relying on myself. I want to rely on God for everything. That's, that takes work. So that's why we want to, to cultivate and embrace and maintain this spiritual attitude of dependence. Because this is what we see Israel doing. And this is what God even warns us. Uh, but before we get there, I want, how did you enter into the kingdom of heaven? How, what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? If you, if you know Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, I think that, that should be up there. And here's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's like the opening statement of the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by the great, greatest preacher on earth, in heaven, and under the earth, everywhere, is the greatest preacher. He begins his sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is an interactive session, so let me ask you, what do poor people have to offer? What are poor people known for? What is it? Begging, Begging. yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. All right. What does that imply? Think about it. Like if you're begging, I mean, you're kind of dependent on whoever is giving the money. And Jesus uses that to begin his sermon. And says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. And we, we agree on that for, for those of us that have been Christians for a while and for those of us that, are, that the Lord just called us into faith. We, we realize that there's something that's missing. I, I can no longer rely on myself to help myself or to receive salvation or to answer the questions of life. And that's, that's how we get in, right? Those questions are like, that's what draws us to Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, if you come in this attitude, Poor in spirit, I'm bankrupt, I'm needy, and I need, I need to be dependent on somebody else, and that somebody else is you, Jesus, then you would enter into the kingdom of God. Then the kingdom of heaven is yours. Here's what we need to guard against, and here's what tends to happen if naturally speaking, is we tend to think that it's just that part that was up there right now is just a, a gateway or an entry. Okay, I was poor in spirit. I didn't have the answer to all of the, uh, the questions of life. And, and I just needed someone to save me. And I said, Jesus, save me. And Jesus saved me. All right, I'm in now. I'm in the kingdom. So now I can start relying on myself. 
that's the natural tendency of us defaulting back into our inclination to be self-reliant. But this is not just an entry point attitude. This is a lifelong attitude. We imagine you're poor. I mean, for some of us, including myself, I don't we don't necessarily have to imagine that. That's that's my life. <laughs> um, and then someone comes and and gives me a million bucks. I mean, a million bucks is a lot of money to me right now. But some people might say a million bucks is not going to do anything. And and says, here's a million bucks, manage it. This is yours. Now I can be like the the prodigal son and then just go and waste it everywhere. But that's if the million bucks is given to me immediately as as a whole. But if someone comes to you and says, here's a million bucks, but I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you a check. This million bucks is yours. I'm gonna cut you a check each month for the rest of your life. That's going to make you live like a rich person. That's not going to make you poor anymore. That doesn't automatically mean that you have, you do have access to a million bucks, but you're still relying on that check to come at the end of the month. So you don't live wastefully. And that's essentially what we have in terms of our Christian life. If we walk in this gateway as an entry point, but we are also going to live with that kind of dependence to God. Consider the Israelites. Uh, Those verses are there. Um, I think it should come up there as well. Consider the people of Israel, like we were singing. This This is why I said, talking about the wilderness, promised land and everything. Like that's that's our that's in the that's in here, right? So Israel is wandering for forty years in the wilderness, in the desert. They have nothing. In fact, they were less than nothing. They were enslaved by the Egyptians, and God delivers them and gives them a promise. Who who would they depend on to deliver them and to actually? help them go into the promised land. They will be dependent on God, right? So as, he's, as they're about to enter the promised land, he tells them this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give it to you with great uh, and, and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, this is what he says, verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, the Israelites were poor. They were slaves and All they had was a bunch of sand and wilderness in front of them. They didn't even have water. They had to depend on God to do a miraculous act to to even drink water. They didn't have food. God had to give them manna. 
Something that they, they didn't know what it was. Manna, by the way, is a Bible trivia question. Manna means, what is this? Like, that's the literal translation of manna. <laughs> they saw it, they're like, what is this? They're like, we don't know, but it tastes good. And it's there every day, and it fills us up. They were so dependent, right? And as they're doing that, that's all they had. And God says, even once you go into it, and you have an abundance of, now you know what you're eating. You're going to have cisterns full of water. You're going to have, like, vineyards. And you're going, to, you're going to be so rich. None of it is yours. I'm just going to give it to you. When you get in there, don't forget me. Don't forget to rely on me. God delivered them so they depended on God to deliver them and, and lead them into the promised land. And he repeats the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just look at verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Verse 12, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your hearts will be lifted up. You'll be glad, and you forget the Lord your God. Verse 17, I think that's the next slide. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. I mean, it's, He's really clear in how they are supposed to live. Yes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and theirs is the kingdom of God. Once you get in the kingdom, then you still live because He lets you stay here. And we know what happened with the Israelites. I mean, they had the blueprint. And what do they do? They get in. God gives them everything that he promises. They build houses. Some of them, some of them inherit houses they didn't even build. They're like, they're living in, in houses they didn't build. They were eating food that they didn't, they didn't make, so to speak. Getting the fruit of, the, uh, uh, of, of something that they didn't plant. And then they turn from him. They forget. They're like, oh yeah, look how, look how great we are. Like we're, look what we did. They stop relying on him and then he judges them. That's the rest of the chapter. You can read that. Why would God then warn them to watch themselves? By the way, the NASB, which is my favorite translation, but the ESV is also my favorite translation. It says... <laughs> Watch yourselves, is what it says, where it says, beware. The NASB says, watch yourself. And I like to kind of read my Bible, like, conversationally sometimes. Hey, watch out. Watch yourself. You're going to do this. I mean, God, God is their father. God is our father. And he talks to us as our father, lovingly. He's not just warning us so he's going to be ready to punish us. But imagine the conversations that you would have with your 
children when you have them. <laughs> or the pa your parents had with you. Like, hey, watch yourself. Watch out. Don't do that. Because if you do this, this is going to happen. And how many times have that proven to be true in life? Oh, yeah. And it's usually until the mid-20s where we realize. And we're like, ah, I get it. That's what, right? <laughs> Most of us in here are kind of like that. Earlier teenage years and early on, either we don't get it or it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And my mom used to say this to me, and I didn't know that this was a, a blessing and a curse. <laughs> um, she would say, she would say, hey, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna regret it because I'm not gonna be here one day and, and you're not, nobody's gonna remind you of these things. Or she would say something like this, you're gonna have kids and you're gonna, you're gonna see what I'm talking about. And when I was a teenager and early 20s and kids were like an afterthought for me, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, mom. Right, whatever. Now I get it. Now I catch myself saying the same thing and, saying the same thing to, to my kids. One day you're going to get it. It's all right. This is my blessing to you. Okay? And that's what God is telling me. Watch out. Because they too, like us, have the propensity to become independent and self-reliant. Once you get what you want, then you're like, I don't want nothing to do with you. Right, COVID happened a couple of years ago. I don't know how many of you guys got um, that stipend. Maybe your parents did because maybe then you were still um, dependents, pun intended and all. Right? And everybody took that money. I mean, I don't know how much, how much was it, like $5,000 for families and $2,500 for singles, whatever. And if you had kids, say, is it $1,200? I mean, people took it. And they, I mean, the stock market was was booming. People buy a bunch of Bitcoin and Dogecoin, all of that. And everything was good. But they didn't want anything to do, the responsibility that came with that. They just wanted to take it, and then that, that's it. And then we're kind of seeing the effect of it now with inflation and everything because the money had to come from somewhere. And they had to tax us back. They got, they got to get that money back. The government had to. That's kind of what we do. That's what we're accustomed to. Now everybody's complaining. Like, nobody was complaining when you got what you wanted. Now you're, you're complaining because we want to have the cake and eat it too. Same way that the Israelites felt, and that's why God is telling them, once you get in the promised land, don't fall back into your default mode of independence and self-reliance. And as we are gathered here, I don't know, is it 20 of us? Uh, do we have extra? Did you guys, did you guys get one of these? Um, so you can follow along. Early on in our, in our planting stages... <laughs> Anyone? You got one? You don't need one? Sorry. It can be, it can be relatively easy to be reliant on God. Because, I mean, I mean, the health and the growth and the, even, like, 
the very existence of this new church called Remnant Bible Church depends on God. It's easy for us to see. It's clear for us to see. So we are really dependent on that. And early on in the planting stages, uh, like we, we are going to be more dependent. And we, we can see the need to have this internal system, this spiritual attitude. But we need to see it even in the long term. We need to have this uh, internal system or the spiritual attitude baked into the culture of our church so that we too won't make the same mistake that the Israelites did. Oh, we're no longer 20 people meeting at 2 p.m. in, in the upstairs room at, at the mother church's building, whatever. We're no, no longer down the line do we need to, to kind of depend on things that we're 200 and 400, whatever the success, whatever the Lord would, would do in our midst. When that comes, if we stop relying on God the same way we're relying on Him now, then we stand in danger of putting God in our backseat, kicking Him out of our car, kicking Him out of the church, and out of the pulpit, out of the ministries, and just saying, all right, we're just dependent on how well Manny can preach or how well the, the sisters can, can sing and maybe some brothers added then too, right? Like how well we can minister and how well we can argue, or, or how, uh, whatever it is, we can, we can depend on those things if we don't have this baked into our culture now. And we shouldn't presume for, for one moment that we can do anything apart from Christ in life and community. I think David understood this. And in his prayer um, found in Psalm 19, verse 13, he says this, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. I think he understood this fact. Is they're really subtle? His presumptuous sins are not like, they don't just come and say, oh, hey, keep God out of it. You can depend on your ability to, to raise finances and to, to throw and put together conferences and like have a great production and social media team and reach whatever and then just get people in and fill the seats and raise the funds and then you can be a great church. Just, just you can, you can, you, you, you can keep the God thing in the background as long as these activities are there. Those things don't come up as explicitly as I just mentioned them. They're really subtle. And David understood this because he had a presumptuous sin of his own when he wanted to build a, uh, a temple for, for God, a house for God. This is a good idea, by the way. I mean, the, the things that I said, they're, they're great in and of themselves. They're not evil. But it's when they take precedent over who God is and where God is supposed to be. That's evil. So God, David, if you remember, uh, if you know the story, 2 Samuel 7, that's where you find it. He, he says, look, I, I live in a nice house. I've got a nice, nice house. But God... The ark lived in a tent then. He's like, God is living in a tent. Nah, this ain't right. I got to do something about this. So he goes and finds a, a 
prophet. No, he didn't find the prophet. The prophet was there. But, but he goes and, and tell, tells the prophet, um, and he says, hey, I got this idea. And the prophet says, yeah, go for it. And that sounds like a great idea. Great prophet he was. <laughs> I mean, the humor in, in that passage, I mean, you'll see it. And he's like, yeah, go for it. That, that sounds good. And he goes to bed that same night. God comes and speaks to the prophet. Like, what are you doing? Like, who am I to live in, in a house? Like, it's not David's will that needs to happen. It's my will. And my will is not for David to, to build me a house. My will is for his son to build me a house. So he goes back and says, hey, stop, 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 stop. You're not supposed to do it. But there's a promise. And David receives the covenant through whom Jesus Christ, our Lord, comes even from then. But David didn't stop because he presumed that God needed him. And that's why he keeps this, he, he prays this prayer. Keep me from presumptuous sins. I looked up the word presumptuous in the, in the Hebrew, so you didn't have to. You can't. But, but there's a sense where it implies a subtle godlessness. A subtle, like, uh, being godless in the sense of, like, being apart from God, where God is not there. Right? A subtle godless pride. A subtle godless pride-filled rebellion. That's what that presumptuous sin implies, the sense and I put that word subtle there because it's not as overt as we may think. We can just get carried away by great ideas, meaningful activities, and productive meetings, which make perfect grounds for the subtle shift from dependence on God to dependence to the ideas, dependence on the ideas, dependence on the activities, dependence on the meetings, dependence on the relationships, instead of depending on God. And that shift happens so subtly, just, just one degree of deviation at a time. And before you know it, you're doing something completely against God's will. So we have to maintain this posture of dependence on God. We must learn to wait on the Lord patiently. Wait on the Lord prayerfully. Wait on the Lord in, 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 in seeking His will from the revealed will in Scripture. We must learn to do these things to commune with Him, to have community with Him. Independence is really marked by this, by this attitude. Uh, this attitude of patient, prayerful communion with God. That's, that's the attitude, right? It doesn't mean that we have, we're indecisive. When we say we're dependent on God to make decisions or whatever, it's like, okay, we're not, we're not even tempting God. God, show me a sign so I know what to do next. We just depend on God. We have this this attitude about us. 
that is so baked into our, our DNA, being prayerful and commu- having communion with God, that whatever I decide, it comes out of that intimate relationship with God. And we have that attitude about us. But it's also willing to do the things according to his word, empowered by his spirit, right? So altogether, it reads like this, or it sounds like this, dependence is marked by an attitude of patient, prayerful communion with God that is willing to do the things according to his word and empowered by his spirit. Willing to do the things according to his word. And if you look at the context of all the passages that that we've gone through that are on your handouts, you would see, by the way, that dependence on God is knitted to dependence on his word. Like in Psalm chapter 19, David is talking about the heavens uh, declare the glory of God. The first six verses is talking about general revelation with uh, how creation talks about God. And then from 7 um, on to the end of the chapter, he's talking about God's law, God's word, God's scripture, God's ordinances. I mean, he tells it all, all of this. It's dependence on his word. Based on that, then he prays that prayer. Keep back your servant from being dependent on himself from presumptuous sins. Even in our um, scripture in Deuteronomy, take care, uh, chapter 8 and verse 11. We can go back to that one if you you want to see it up there. Uh, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. That's God's word. So be dependent on God means be dependent on his word. Those two things are intertwined. They're knitted to one another. When we say we're dependent, we're saying we are in and of ourselves not sufficient. Right? That's what dependent means. Like if you're most of us were dependent on our parents once once upon a time. That means we didn't have the sufficient means to sustain our own lives. That's what we're saying. And as a church, when we say we want to have this attitude of dependence towards God, we're saying in and of ourselves, even though we can collectively come and, and, and actually seem capable, and speaking temporally, I mean, we can all put money together, we can... We can come and, and have fellowship together. And then we, but that's not sufficient. There's an insufficiency about that. That's what we're admitting. How many people like to admit that they're insufficient? I don't even like seeing that when, uh, when I swipe my debit card and it says insufficient funds let alone admit that about myself. I'm the only one that can relate. Ouch. 
right? But we know that God is sufficient. And God's word is sufficient. And that's, I mean, that's a skeletal um, structure, right? We, we talked about, that, that's, that's one of the things. We depend on the authority and the sufficiency. I need to add that, Patel, remind me not to forget that. I need to add that to our skeleton part, the sufficiency part. That was, that was her amendment or her, her contribution, if you will. Or, yeah. We, we are, that's the non-negotiable of our church. The authority, the supreme authority and sufficiency of Scripture because we believe that God's Word is sufficient. Why? Because, I mean, the Bible tells me so. That's a good answer. And I'm constantly reminded, and I'm, this is fascinating, and Sador would, would know what, what this is. Second Peter, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that's our, for, for our partners, um, this one-on-one discipleship, that was our memory verse, right? Look at what, what God says. His divine power has granted, you want to you say it? There you go. Don't look. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> that that pertains to 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 life and godliness, right? Yeah, I mean, look at that. It's right there. His divine power has granted to us some things. Like most things. Like, I mean, you can go look at it and look for it in the Greek. Because this is New Testament. It's written in Greek. If you looked up the word all things in the Greek, you will find it means all things. Like without lacking any. That's the definition of being sufficient. God's power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what we're pursuing. I mean, if you're if, if you've come to faith in Christ and you have you have now been united with other believers in in the body of Christ, which we call the church, that's what we're pursuing. We're living life together in a godly manner. And God has already granted it to us. That's the sufficiency of God. Because it's what, div- what, what grants this to us, by the way, is His divine power. How? Through the knowledge. That is communicated in Scripture, but through the knowledge of Himself. And we have the all-sufficient person and the all-sufficient revelation of God's Word in Scripture. And we can depend on that. Another passage for us to consider in terms of His sufficiency and the sufficiency of Scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It starts saying, Most of Scripture, 
or, or some of Scripture. That's all of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It contains God's own breath, in other words. And it is profitable. How much of it is profitable? Just, just the ones that apply to your life? Just the ones that you like to accept without, without it coming and making you uncomfortable? No, all of it is profitable. For what is it profitable? For every good work. What kind of work? Every good work. For, how, does that, how does that actually happen? By teaching, us, by teaching us, by reproofing us, by correcting us, and by training us. It's sufficient. Teaching tells you how to be. Reproof tells you where you went wrong. Then the correction tells you how to, how to get back on track. And then training tells you how to practice that and grow in that, by the way. Those, so it gives you the information as it teaches you. Then, like, like we were talking about, knowing and doing are two different things. So, and while we're applying it, and when we do something wrong, or there was a wrong thinking, then the reproof tells us, "Hey, that's wrong." But God doesn't just leave you, "Hey, that's wrong. Stop doing that." He tells you, "Here's the correct way of doing it." He corrects you, and then here's how you do it: training each day being there and training you. Training, right? Those of you that go to the gym or have, have had any kind of formal training in any way, you, you, you don't just train for one day and you got it. I mean, we train to be, I don't know, whatever your major is, computer science or psychology or accounting. We train every day for four years to achieve something, right? IT, cybersecurity, or whatever. Shout out to uh, cybersecurity guys. <laughs> but training implies the consistency of God's word, is what I'm getting at. So that's why it's all sufficient. That's what we depend on. We depend on God's sufficiency, both in his person and in his word. Because we are admitting that we are insufficient in and of ourselves. So we must cultivate and maintain, and that's the last thing that you would see on there, as our resolution. We as the Remnant Bible Church, by the way, pun intended there too, Remnant Bible Church, right? It's, it's right there in the Word. It's in, it's in the Bible. The Bible is our authority, right? Because it's sufficient for us to do all these things. Like if we're going to cultivate these attitudes, these spiritual attitudes, and maintain them, we got to do it not in of ourselves, not depending on how well I can teach it or how well someone can preach it and how well we can communicate these things, how well God has revealed it. That's why we're looking at church anatomy to begin with, from the Bible. This is... Not necessarily um, an exhaustive look at what dependence looks like, 
but it's a comprehensive one. So based on that is what we say. We will cultivate this attitude and we will maintain this attitude of dependence on God's word and his power to do his work his way. Now having said that, I want to open it up to discussion and question for the next few minutes and uh, we'll close in prayer.